0: This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 7, given in Berlin on the 2nd of November, 1908. Today we will embark on spiritual scientific studies that show us how the knowledge we acquire through the anthroposophic worldview can give us insights into life in the broadest sense. Besides developing greater understanding of mundane reality through such knowledge, we also gain broad, wide-ranging insights as we trace life beyond death into the time unfolding for us then between death and a new birth. But spiritual science can be of great benefit precisely for ordinary daily life solving various riddles, and showing us how, if you like, we can cope with life. For those whose gaze cannot delve into the foundations of existence, much of what they encounter in life on a daily, indeed an hourly basis, will be incomprehensible. Many questions will build up for them, which sensory experience cannot answer, but which, if they remain unresolved riddles, can disrupt life by causing dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction in life, however, can never lead people further or serve humanity's real salvation. There are hundreds of riddles of this kind which we could consider and which illumine life in a much more profound way than we might expect. The word forget is one that conceals many mysteries. It, of course, designates the opposite of retention of a particular idea, thought, or impression. No doubt you have all had some dismal experience of what this word represents. You have probably all suffered the agony of being unable to recall some idea or impression because it has vanished from your memory. You may then also have wondered why forgetting has to form part of our experience of life. Only insight into esoteric realities can help us understand such a thing. As you know, memory or recall recall is connected with what we call the human etheric body. We can therefore assume that the opposite of remembering, forgetting, will likewise have something to do with the etheric body. It may be justified to ask whether any purpose is served by the fact that we can forget things we have once had in our mind. Or must we instead, as so often happens, accept the negative characterization of forgetting as a deficiency of the human soul, our inability to keep everything in mind at once? We will only gain insight into forgetting if we call to mind the significance of its opposite, the importance and nature of memory. When we say that memory is connected with the etheric body, we also have to ask why it acquires this role of retaining impressions and ideas. After all, a plant has an ether body, and there it has a substantially different function. We have often discussed the fact that in contrast to a mere stone, the whole materiality of a plant we see before us is permeated by its ether body. In the plant, the ether body is the principle of life in the strict sense, and then also that of repetition. If a plant were to subject only to the activity of the ether body, then the leaf principle would simply keep repeating from the root upward. It is due to the ether body that parts of a living entity keep replicating anew for it always seeks to keep producing the same thing. Something like this also occurs, of course, in reproduction, the producing of one's own species, and this is largely dependent on the ether body's activity. Everything in us and in animals that depends on replication can be ascribed to the etheric principle. The fact that vertebrae keep repeating in the spine is due to this activity of the ether body. But where all the plant's vegetative growth culminates in the flower, this is due to the earth's astrality descending into the plant from without. The human astral body is likewise responsible for the way the vertebrae expand as they rise to form the skull, becoming hollow. We can therefore say that whatever induces completion and conclusion is subject to the astral body, while all recapitulation derives from the ether body. The plant has this ether body, as we do also. Of course a plant has no memory. To claim that a plant has some kind of unconscious memory that induces it to take note of the nature of the leaf it has produced before continuing to grow a little and then repeat the pattern by putting forth another leaf takes us into the kind of fantastical territory to which modern scientists have recently given credence. People say, for instance, that heredity derives from a kind of unconscious memory. Currently this has led to some nonsensical notions in scientific literature, for the plant has no memory, and to say that it has is really just amateurish in the extreme. The etheric body here enacts the principle of recapitulation. To understand the difference between the ether body of the plant and that of the human being, which in addition to the functions of the plant's ether body also has the capacity to develop memory, we have to clarify how plant and human being differ overall. If you imagine planting a seed in the ground, a quite specific plant will grow from it. A wheat grain will produce a wheat stalk and ears of wheat, whereas a bean will produce a bean plant. The way a plant develops is unalterably determined in a specific way by the nature of the seed. While it is true that a gardener can come along and enhance or reshape the plant by all sorts of horticultural methods, basically this is just a sort of exception to the rule and is also very limited in scope compared with the general principle we stated, that a plant developing from its seed will assume a very particular form and grow in a very specific way, and so on. Is the same true of us? Certainly to a certain degree, but only so far. When a person emerges from the human seed, we see that he is subject to certain developmental strictures. A black child is born to black parents, a white child to white ones. We could give various examples here to show that the growth of human beings, like that of plants, occurs within certain limitations. But this holds true only within certain parameters, within the confines of physical, etheric, and also astral nature. A child's habits and inclinations, which remain with him throughout life, can be shown to resemble passions and instincts of his ancestors. But if we were confined within the limits of a certain kind of growth as the plant is, there could be no such thing as education or the unfolding of qualities of soul and spirit. Think of two different sets of parents giving birth to two children whose disposition and outward characteristics resemble each other closely. And then imagine one of the children being neglected with scarcely any attention paid to educating him while the other is conscientiously educated, sent to a good school, and helped to develop fully. You cannot say that rich development of this kind was present in the seed of the child already, as, say, in the bean. The bean plant will grow whatever happens, and does not need to be educated. That's its nature. We cannot educate a plant, but we can educate children. We can pass things on to the child, introduce him to things, whereas the plant is immune from such efforts. What is this due to? It is due to the fact that in every instance the plant's ether body possesses a certain intrinsic lawfulness, closed off from outer influence and developing from seed to seed, a certain scope that cannot be exceeded. The human ether body is different. Besides the part of it used for growth, for the same kind of development that in a sense encompasses us as it does the plant, there is another part of the ether body, you can say, that exists freely and has no prior use unless we teach the child all all sorts of things in educating him, incorporating into the human soul all manner of things which this free part of the ether body makes use of and assimilates. In other words, there really is a part of the human ether body in us that nature does not use. We retain this and do not use it for growth, do not apply it to natural biological development, but retain it within us as something intrinsically free by means of which we can assimilate the ideas and images that approach us through education. This assimilation of ideas occurs initially, however, by virtue of the fact that we receive impressions. We must always receive impressions, since all education is also based on impressions and on collaboration between the etheric and astral bodies. To receive impressions, you see, we need the astral body. But to retain an impression so that it does not fade again, the etheric body is needed. The activity of the ether body is necessary for retaining even the least, apparently most insignificant, memory. For instance, if you look at something, you need the astral body, but to retain it, after turning your head away, you need the etheric body. The astral body is involved in looking at things, but the etheric body is necessary for retaining the image of it. Though very limited activity of the etheric body retains images in this way, and though it really only comes into its own in relation to lasting habits, inclinations, changes to temperament and so on, nevertheless this is where it is needed. To retain even a simple idea in our head, the etheric body has to be present, since all retention of ideas is in a sense based on memory." Through educative impressions, through mental development, we incorporate all kinds of things into the free part of our etheric body, and must now ask whether this free part remains of no importance whatever for growth and development. That is not so. The older we become, not so much in younger years, all the educative impressions incorporated into our etheric body participate in the whole life of the human body, also inwardly. You can best understand the nature of this participation if I tell you something that is not usually considered in ordinary life. People think that soul qualities generally have little significance for human life, but the following can happen. Someone falls ill simply because he has been exposed to adverse climatic conditions. Now we have to picture hypothetically that he can be ill under two types of condition, firstly in a state where he does not have much to assimilate in the free part of his ether body. Let's assume that he is lethargic, and the outer world makes little impression on him, that he has put great obstacles in the way of educational efforts in his direction, that things have gone in one ear and out the other. A person like this will not have the same means of recovery as someone else who possesses a lively, active sensibility and has absorbed a great deal in his youth, assimilated a great deal, thus taking very good care of the free part of his ether body. Practitioners of mainstream medicine, of course, still have a way to go before they can ascertain why greater obstacles to the process of recovery are apparent in one person than in the other. This free part of the ether body, in which manifold impressions have engendered dynamism, comes to the fore here and its inner mobility participates in the process of recovery. In numerous instances, people owe their rapid or painless recovery to the fact that in their youth they diligently assimilated the impressions offered to them. Here you see the effect of the spirit on the body. Trying to cure someone who passes through life with dull sensibility is a very different matter from doing the same for someone whose free part of the ether body is not sluggish and lethargic, but has remained active. Empirical evidence of this can be ascertained simply by observing the world with open eyes and seeing the different ways in which mentally lazy and mentally active people respond to illness so you can see that the ether body is something quite different in people than in plants the plants excuse me the plant lacks this free aspect of the ether body which allows us to develop basically all human development depends on us having this free aspect If you compare the beans of a millennia ago with those of today, you will see that the difference between them, though there is one, will be very small and that basically they have remained the same. But compare Europeans at the time of Charlemagne with Europeans today. Why do people today have very different ideas and feelings? It is because they have always possessed a free aspect of their ether body which enabled them to assimilate things and transform their nature. This is all true in general. But now let us consider how all that we have described actually functions in detail. Let us take the example of someone who, having received an impression, is unable to erase it from his memory again. It would be a strange thing to imagine that everything that has ever made an impression on you from childhood on should be present in your mind every day of your life, from morning through to evening. As you know, all this is only present to your awareness for a certain period after death, where it serves its proper purpose. But during life we forget things. All of you have not only forgotten countless things that you experienced in childhood, but also a great deal of what happened to you last year, and no doubt also some of what happened yesterday. A notion that has disappeared from your memory, which you have, in quotes, forgotten, has not, however, vanished from your entire spiritual organism, the record and pattern of your being. This certainly isn't the case. If you saw a rose yesterday and have now forgotten it, The image of the rose is still present in you, as are all the other impressions you absorbed, even if they have been forgotten as far as your immediate awareness is concerned. Now there is really an enormous difference between an idea or picture, while you remember it, and the same idea when it has disappeared from your memory. So let us consider an image formed in response to an external impression which is now living in our awareness then let us cast our eye eye of soul on the way it gradually disappears is gradually forgotten it is still present though within our whole spiritual organism what is it doing there what is this forgotten image in quotes preoccupied with it has its very own excuse me it has its own very important role You see, it only begins to work upon this free part of the ether body which I described and to render this free part of the ether body of use to us once it has been forgotten. It is as if this image or idea has only then been properly assimilated. As long as we make use of it in order to know something with its aid, it is not working inwardly on the free mobility on the organization of the free part of the ether body. The moment it fades and is forgotten, it starts to work. And so we can say that ongoing work is continually underway within the free part of our etheric body. And what is it that undertakes this work? The laborers are our forgotten ideas. That is the great blessing of forgetting as long as an idea or image sticks in your mind you relate to an object excuse me you relate it to an object if you observe a rose and retain the memory of it you relate the rose image to the external rose so that the image is bound to the external object and is obliged to send out its inner energy toward it but the moment you forget the image it is inwardly released and starts to develop germinal powers that work inwardly upon your etheric body. Our forgotten notions, therefore, have major significance for us. A plant cannot forget, nor, of course, can it receive impressions. Simply because it uses up all its ether body for the purposes of growth, it would be unable to forget, since there is no unused remainder. Even if ideas could enter it, a plant would have nothing with which to develop them. But everything that happens does so in lawful necessity. Wherever something is present that needs to develop but is not supported in its development, an obstacle to development is created. Everything in an organism that is not incorporated into development becomes a hindrance to development. If all kinds of occlusions were secreted within the eye, eye, substances that could not be assimilated into its general aqueous nature, vision would be impaired. Nothing may remain that is not integrated and absorbed. The same is true of mental impressions. Someone who, say, could receive impressions but had to retain them continually in his mind would soon be likely to reach a point where the part of the ether body that should be nourished by forgotten notions would receive too little of such sustenance and would then hamper development like a paralyzed limb instead of furthering it. This is also why it is injurious for someone to lie awake at night and fail to get impressions out of his mind due to worry and anxiety. If he could forget them, they would become beneficial agents working upon his ether body. This shows vividly that forgetting is a blessing, at the same time highlighting the importance of not compulsively clinging to some notion or other, but instead learning to forget it. It is extremely injurious to a person's health if he cannot forget certain things. These very mundane and momentary things also have their ethical and moral dimension. The character of someone who does not harbor grudges has a beneficial effect, and there is really a connection here. To harbor grudges eats away at a person's health. If someone has done harm to us and having absorbed the impression of what he did to us, we repeatedly return to it whenever we see him, then we relate this idea of harm to the person concerned and allow it to stream out of from us. But if the next time we see this person, we manage to shake his hand as if nothing has happened, this is actually healing, not just in a metaphorical sense, but in reality. A notion that appears dull and ineffective outwardly, when someone has injured us, can at the same time pour into us and act in many ways as an inwardly healing balm. These things are realities, and can again show us the broader aspects of the blessing of forgetting. Forgetting is not a mere deficiency in us, but is intrinsic to the most beneficial aspects of human life. If we only developed our memory, with everything retained there that makes an impression on us, our ether body would accumulate ever more of a burden, acquiring more and more content, but at the same time growing increasingly withered, We owe our capacity for development to forgetting. But it is also true to say that no idea vanishes entirely from us, and we can best see this in the great memory tableau of our life that unfolds before us immediately after death. Here we see that no impression is ever entirely lost. We have touched upon the blessing of forgetting in daily life, both in neutral and moral realms. Let us now consider how forgetting works in the greater scope of life between death and a new birth. What is the nature of Kamaloka, that period of transition we pass through before our entry into Devakan, the true world of spirit? Kamaloka exists because immediately after death we cannot forget the inclinations, desires and pleasures we entertained during our lifetime. At death we first depart from our physical body, and then behold the great memory tableau I have often described. After two, three, or at most four days, this ceases entirely, leaving a kind of extract of the ether body. While the real full part of the ether body draws away and dissolves into the general universal ether, a kind of essence remains the ether body's framework or matrix, but now contracted. The astral body is the bearer of all instincts, drives, desires, passions, feelings, emotions and pleasures. Now in Kamaloka, the astral body would be unable to become aware of the torments of privation if it were not continually able to recall through its ongoing connection with the residues of the ether body what it has enjoyed and desired in life. The shedding of these habits is basically nothing other than a gradual forgetting of what chains us to the physical world. And so when a person wishes to enter Devakan, he must first learn to forget what chains him to the physical world. Here too, therefore, we see that we are tormented by retaining our memory of the physical world. Just as anxieties can become a torment when they refuse to be dislodged from our memory, inclinations and instincts that remain after death are likewise a torment. And this tormenting memory of our connection with life comes to expression in everything we have to undergo during our Kamaloka period. The moment we have succeeded in forgetting all desires and wishes connected with the physical world and only then, the achievements and fruits of our previous life appear in the way necessary for them to take effect in Devakan. There they create and craft the shape of our forthcoming life. Basically in Devakan, we work at the new form we are to have when we return to earthly life. This work of preparing the subsequent pattern of our being produces the bliss we experience in passing through Devakan. Having undergone Kamaloka, we begin to prepare our future form. Life in Devakan is always taken up with using the essence accorded us to elaborate the archetype of our subsequent form. We create this archetype by working the fruits of our past life into it. But we can only do this by forgetting what made Kamaloka so difficult for us. In speaking of suffering and privation in Kamaloka, we see that this is due to our inability to forget certain connections with the physical world, and that this world still hovers before us like a memory. Once we have traversed Letha's flood, the river of oblivion, and learned to forget, The achievements and experiences of our previous incarnation are used gradually to develop the archetype, the prototype of our subsequent life. And then suffering starts to be replaced by the sacred bliss of Devakhan. Just as we can be plagued in ordinary life to the point of ill health, by anxieties and images that refuse to fade from our memory and become a dry, withering obstacle inserted in our etheric body, so in our being after death we bear an obstacle that will go on causing us suffering and privation until by forgetting we have swept aside all connections with the physical world. And just as these forgotten notions can become a seed of recovery for us, so all experiences of our past life become a wellspring of joy in Devakan, once we have traversed the river of oblivion and have forgotten all that binds us to life in the world of the senses. And thus we see how these laws of forgetting and remembering hold true for life in its broadest scope. You may ask how, after death, we can have any notions, whatever, of what happened in our previous life if we are obliged to forget this life, you might wonder whether forgetting is a concept that can be entertained at all, since the human soul has cast off its ether body, and after all, memory and forgetting are connected with this body. Naturally, memory and forgetting acquire a somewhat different form after death. A transformation occurs, so that in place of ordinary recall, we read in the Akashic Record. Whatever has happened in the world does not vanish but exists objectively. As memory of our connection with physical life fades during Kamaloka, these same occurrences surface in a quite different way, becoming apparent to us in the Akashic Record. We then no longer need the connection with our life as produced by ordinary memory. All such questions can be resolved if we take the time to ponder them. They only gradually become clear since it is not possible to explain everything at once. To know these things also helps us understand much in daily life. A good deal of what belongs to the human ether body becomes apparent in the way the temperaments affect us. We have seen that the enduring disposition we refer to as temperament, also has its source in the etheric body. Consider a person of melancholic temperament who cannot get over certain ideas that he feels compelled to keep pondering, quite different from a person of sanguine or phlegmatic temperament whose ideas fade as fast as they arise. A melancholic temperament, in precisely the way we have been describing, can be injurious to health whereas a sanguine temperament can be exceedingly conducive to health in some respects. Of course, this should not be taken to mean that we ought to try to forget everything. But the healthy, beneficial aspect of a sanguine or phlegmatic temperament can be understood precisely in relation to these things, and likewise the unhealthy aspect of a melancholic temperament. We will still need to ask Whether the phlegmatic temperament acts in the right way. A phlegmatic, who absorbs inconsequential ideas, will soon forget them, and this can only be healthy for him. But if these ideas, excuse me, but if these are the only notions he absorbs, this will not be good after all. Diverse things, you see, are all interrelated here. So, let us ask again is forgetting a defect of human nature or does it have a beneficial aspect after all? Spiritual scientific insights enable us to answer this question, and strong moral impulses, we find, can also follow from such insights. If a person believes that it is, quite objectively, conducive to his health and well-being to be able to forget insults and injuries to which he has been exposed, a quite different impulse will guide him. But as long as he thinks this has no effect, no moralizing sermon will do any good at all. By knowing that he needs to forget and that his well-being depends on it, he will open himself to this impulse in a quite different way. This doesn't have to be merely egoistic. We can look at it like this. If I am sick and ailing... If I ruin the inner state of my spirit, soul, and body, I will be of no use to the world. The question of well-being can be considered from an entirely different point of view. A pronounced egotist will, anyway, gain little from such considerations. But for someone concerned with the good of humanity, who therefore wishes to help further this, and keeping in mind his own well-being as part and parcel of it, Such considerations will enable him to draw moral conclusions too if he can reflect upon such things. And then if spiritual science enters and acts upon our life, revealing to us the truth about certain spiritual states, it will more than any other insight provide us too with the most powerful ethical and moral impulses rather than moral commandments of a merely external nature. Insight into the realities of the spiritual world, such as spiritual science conveys, provides a strong impetus to enhance and improve human life, also in the realm of moral conduct. The end of Lecture 7